humbling responsibility as well as the glorious privilege of opening up to you the word of the living God. And so I would ask you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10 as our launching pad. We have been here for a number of weeks as we have looked at the lives of the apostles, the men that Jesus shaped. And in Matthew chapter 10, we read in verse 1, And having summoned his disciples, his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas. And we will stop there because today we will... Endeavor to understand more about this beloved apostle, Thomas. Before we look at the text and we continue on understanding the men that Jesus shaped, may I remind you that the Lord shaped impulsive Peter into a controlled and seasoned leader. And we think back over the months as we've looked at these texts and we realize that he used the quiet, behind-the-scenes Andrew, content to to serve in obscurity, to become a fruitful evangelist. And he harnessed the brashness of the sons of thunder, James and John, and eventually shaped them into men that were powerful and useful, blending love with truth. He even helped hyper-organized Philip, the process person, the guy that had a hard time functioning unless everything went according to plan. Yet God shaped him into a flexible, fearless warrior of the faith who learned to relax in the omnipotent arms of the Almighty. And then we've also learned recently about Nathaniel, the man at times even prone to prejudice, yet the Lord humbled him and revealed himself to him. Now, before we look at the text this morning, may I spend a few minutes asking you to examine your heart? What about you? If the Spirit of God were to write up a progress report about you, what would he say? First of all, maybe with you young people, might he say, well, This particular young person continues to disobey parents. This person cheats, lies in school. Still no progress. Lazy. Won't do her homework, his homework. What about the adults? Well, unfortunately, I remain grieved in this particular person's life. There are still life-dominating sins that continue to quench my spirit and In their life, this person has no real fellowship. Their life is a sham. Their worship is superficial. They're filled with hypocrisy. They have an inflated opinion of their own spirituality. Or might your progress report read something like this? Unfortunately, you are still controlled by besetting sins of jealousy pride. Everything has to go your way or you get mad. You're self-absorbed. You love attention. You're selfish. Every thought and every conversation is always about you. 
You're consumed with how you look on the outside. But your heart is far from me. Or might he say, unfortunately, there's no hungering and thirsting after righteousness in this life. No longing desire to know the word. It's, it's boring to you and there's no desire for you to commune with the Lord in prayer. Or maybe your progress report might say something like, unfortunately, you continue to be unfaithful. I can't trust you. I can't trust you with the little things, so I could never trust you with the big ones. You're unforgiving. Maybe there would be words like uncommitted to humble service, even in the church. You're unaccountable, spiritually undisciplined. Your spiritual gift still lies dormant. It is unused, still no change in your life. <clears throat> Maybe the report would say, still loves to gossip. Divisive, factious, stirs up strife. Words like self-absorbed, selfish. Maybe it might say something like immoral and thought life, even in the way you dress and in your conduct. Or words might be on your progress report like hot headed, demanding, controlling, loves to bully his wife or her husband. Or maybe it's maybe it might say still filled with fear, irrational fears, anxious about everything. Exposing a shallow and a weak faith, prone to melancholy and depression, cynical, pessimistic. Or maybe it might say, still a self-centered perfectionist, making everyone miserable around them. A complainer, a whiner, never satisfied, never content, quietly angry with God, cannot bridle his or her tongue. Or perhaps it might read, poor steward thinks that the world revolves around his or her needs, not God and his glory, spends all of the resources that I have given him on himself, forfeiting blessing in his life. How sad if the spirit of God were to write reports like that of us, and indeed I believe he could. And down at the bottom say, still no change. No progress. Still needing to be shaped. Still living under divine chastening. And because I love him or her, I've got to increase that level of chastening to get his or her attention. He has sown the wind and he is reaping the whirlwind. Robbing himself of the fruits that I would love to give. Fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Folks, the point is simply this. We are either growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Or we are withering and we are dying on the vine and God will chasten us for that. How sad it is to see people who profess Christ and yet they never grow. Have you seen that before? They never grow. They've been in church all their life and they're as immature today as they were the day 
that they professed Christ. Certainly, if that is the case, it is a certain proof biblically that their profession is false. They possess a faith that cannot save, according to James 2.20. Faith without works is what? It's dead. Yet what a joy it is for the redeemed who will hear truth and they will do the truth. They're not just hearers, they're doers of the word. How great it would be if the progress report, and I'm sure it's this way for many of you, if the progress report would read something like this, still struggling, but progress is being made. Teachable, humble, committed, fruits are gradually beginning to bud. You know, I have found over the years that if people are teachable, if they are humble and they are committed, they will grow in Christ. And certainly this was the case with the twelve, I should say the eleven. Not the case with Judas Iscariot. And there is nothing more frustrating for a teacher, regardless of what you're teaching, to have unteachable, arrogant, uncommitted students. Well, this wasn't the case with the apostles. Even with all of their besetting sins, the Lord continued to refine them in the fires of adversity. And he continuously placed them in the crucibles of his grace, giving them opportunities to have the impurities of their sins to be exposed and to be burned off. And how sad it is, again, to see people that are unteachable, that are arrogant, that are uncommitted. They never seem to learn the lessons that the Lord would have for them. And so they stay stuck in the same besetting sins and the same trials over and over again. They're like a child that just can't, Get ahead in school always has to be held back in the same grade. I know Christians that have known Christ, at least they say they have for years and they're still kindergartners. Folks, there's something wrong there. And as we look at the lives that Jesus shaped in the apostles, I hope that you're gleaning different truths from the way the spirit of God worked with them that are applicable to your life. I met with a man not too long ago, and he said, you know, Pastor, I just stay stuck in the same rut. That came to my mind as I was thinking about what God would have me share with you this morning. And I remember replying to the man, well, of course you do, because you love it so. And he said, I don't understand. And I said, oh, but I think you do. You see, you love your habitual sins. And I rehearsed them for him because I knew them well. You love them more than you do Christ. And so you're unwilling to give them up. And so you remain stuck in the same rut of divine chastening where you continue to reap the consequences of the seeds of iniquity that you love so dearly. Frankly, I have no sympathy for you. I love you, but I have no sympathy for you. And there's nothing I can do to help you until you decide to change. Until you decide to change, even if it takes you to a cross. Well, then I got an earful. About five minutes of blame shifting and denial and and distorted theology. And I just kind of sat back. And as I listened, I was praying that the Spirit of God would somehow move upon this man's heart. 
I heard all of the justifications. And believe me, friends, after working with people for over 20 years, I've heard pretty much all of the excuses. I'm kind of like the state trooper when he pulls the guy over. He's already heard all of the excuses. And, you know, after I heard all of this, I simply replied to the man, I rest my case. And he looked at me somewhat puzzled and and I said, you know, you have just perfectly illustrated my point. You love your sin more than you love Christ. And you'll do anything to justify it. So it's your life. If you refuse to be shaped. Then God will chasten you. If he loves you, if you have placed your faith in him, because he chastens those whom he loves. Well, individuals like this, and maybe you're like this, cycle in and out of spiritual crises, in and out of, of spiritual depression. And I've seen it about every, it's usually about every four to six months you will see this. They, they never seem to learn because they are unteachable. They're proud and they're uncommitted. Beloved, may I remind you that sanctification is that glorious process whereby the indwelling spirit shapes us into Christ likeness. Paul reminded of this, uh, reminded us of this in Philippians 2:13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. He also said in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And friends, as we honor Him in our lives, He blesses us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 5 and verse 12. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Therefore, our passionate prayer should be like the psalmist who said in Psalm 19, the end of verse 12, cleanse me from secret falls. You know what he means, those secret places in your imaginations where you pander those delicious sins that you think nobody can see. Cleanse me from secret faults, he says. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You see, folks, this is the cry of every maturing saint. Every maturing saint that is serious about, therefore, the consequences of their sins. Anything that dishonors God and defiles themselves they're going to be crying out for cleansing and that will be an evidence of your growth god cleanse me from the unintentional sins as well as those that are blatant lord i long to find favor in your eyes i i desire to have all of the blessings you want to give me it's heartbreaking to see so many saints that are sad they're sour they're sullen no real joy the fruit in their life is, is, is puny and kind of sickly. God has withdrawn His blessing from them. Why? Inevitably, because they refuse to repent. Al-Qaeda, you know, they got cells over there. You remember what happened in the bombing in Kenya? And, you know, all those folks that were blown up in that building a few years ago. And then I hear from others, oh, you got to be careful of the water. And then I've heard from one, oh, you've got to be careful. And he starts going through all the poisonous snakes that are there, especially in the remote area where we're going to be. 
And one story was told about the missionary lady, and I, I was reminded of this, that she opened up the drawer and the cobra was there and it spit venom. And if it, she hadn't had her glasses on when the venom ran down her glasses, she would have died and, and all of this stuff. And, and then I heard the story, too, about the armies of man-eating ants and they been known to devour babies in their crib and all of this stuff. And after a while, you just want, ah, that's enough, that's enough. Rather than saying, wow, you're going to Africa. What an incredible opportunity to bring the gospel to these people. Well, Thomas may have been a pessimist, dear friends, and we don't know how bad it was. We certainly see an element of that here, but that can certainly be a besetting sin if you allow it to get out of hand. But we could say that Thomas was a courageous pessimist. That would be my second observation. Notice what he says. Let us also go that we may die with him. Don't you see courage there? I love this. He turns and he addresses his fellow apostles as a passionate and a fearless leader. You know, Thomas may have been a pessimist, but he was no coward. He was no coward. And like all brave men and women, he was not afraid to challenge others with, with his valiant resolve. Come on, guys, let's go. And friends, if I can say it this way, courage is bred from the stock of conviction. He knew that the stakes were high, but he knew that it was worth it. And he was convinced that that this cause was a noble cause and it was worth dying for. Whenever I see cowardly Christians unwilling to stand up for truth, I know that their faith is faith is weak. And I know also, therefore, that their convictions are going to be weak. You see. Cowards trust in themselves, not in the Almighty. I remember the story in Numbers 13. Remember that story where the spies went into the land and they feared the giants in the land of Canaan? They feared those giants more than the, in the omnipotent God who made them. Many Christians are like that. They see the battle all around them, and they cry out like some of those spies did in Numbers 13. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Remember them? We are like grasshoppers. And other sheepish Christians hear that silly talk, and they hear the report, and they begin to see the giants of the world all around them in their society, at their workplace. Maybe it's a loved one, whatever it is. And they, like the children of Israel, begin to weep in fear and, and they begin to tremble in terror. And they begin to say, like those Israelites did, oh, let us return to the Egypt of our comfort. This <laughs> is if they're saying, let us let us find a leader who will take us there. Tell us what we want to hear, leader. Help us to compromise with these giants that differ from us and teach us the virtues of tolerance so that that we may live in peace. But not so with Thomas. He was like Joshua and Caleb of that day. And I love the way the text tells us that those men tore their clothes in the presence of that cowering assembly. And they said in Numbers 14, verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into his land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, no fear, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Beloved, may I ask you, do you fear man more than you do God? Indeed, as someone has well said, 
we fear man so much because we fear God so little. So Thomas turns to his brothers in Christ. And he echoes the battle cry of the hymnist that said, Oh, rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Men, if I can pause for a moment and digress, we have got to be the ones that raise the standard of Christ high in the face of the enemies, the enemies of the cross. And we've got to do it with undaunted boldness. Such bravery for Christ begins in the hearts of men who know the word of God and who are willing to live it. I see young people growing up today. And they know absolutely nothing of great theology. And they don't want to know. We're raising a generation of barbarians. And we see it even in the church. But men, we as fathers and as leaders have got to be the bold ones. Like Joshua, who later reminded the men of Israel... That courage was necessary for obeying God and the reward is great. And he said in Joshua 1, 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. You see, guys, we have got to raise that standard. We've got to teach our young people, teach our children the truth of the word of God that we might raise up a great army. For the sake of the kingdom. Well, Thomas was a pessimist. Okay, he was also, however, courageous. But this text tells me something else. It tells me that he was also devoted. He was devoted to the Lord whom he loved. Beloved, he will, we will never offer our lives for Christ unless we love him with an undying devotion. And think of Thomas. He was so committed to the Lord. He was willing to... To go back to Bethany, even if it cost him his life. His zeal gave evidence to his loyalty. His life was consecrated to the Lord. In other words, he was set apart for the glory of God. He was sanctified. That's what that means. Oh, to see young people, to see men, to see women, to see fathers and mothers and husbands and wives consecrated to the Lord. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, about how we can be useful to the Lord regardless of who we are, as long as we are devoted to holiness and to purity of heart. And he says there that that person will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, which means set apart and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Well, we see this devotion in another text in John chapter 14. Turn there. Look at John chapter 14. And here, this is yet another example of Thomas's loving devotion to the Lord. You remember the context here. Jesus is speaking to them about leaving. In verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And then notice verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
We do not know where you're where you are going. How do we know the way? Folks, don't you sense the loving desperation in his voice? It's as if he's saying, Lord, don't don't talk that way. What do you mean you're, you're leaving? We, we don't know where you're going. We don't want you to leave. Lord, we don't understand where you were going. And indeed, they didn't fully understand. And like so many people today, they, they remember, they believed what they wanted to believe. And what they wanted to believe is that the Messiah was here and they, he was going to inaugurate the kingdom. And, and Rome was about to be dethroned and, and the, the, the glorious Messiah would, would, would rule and reign with a rod of iron. And they were going to be with him. Remember, they were still fighting over who was going to be first in the kingdom. But friends, Thomas had also, I believe, developed a deep love for Jesus he was devoted to him. He was, he was like a child whose heart would break with, and, and, and tears would begin to squirt from their eyes at the thought of a parent that, 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 that they love and depend upon is, is suddenly leaving. I mean, we see a microcosm of that in the nursery every Sunday, don't we? This is what was going on with Thomas. Lord, what's this talk about leaving? And please hear me. May I contrast this with with those who claim the name of Christ that seldom give him a second thought. There's no desire to be in his presence. There's no desire to hear his voice from his word. No desire to commune with him in prayer. No longing to see him face to face. No desperation to stand in the presence of his glory. What is that? To have so little love so little devotion. Friends, examine your heart for a moment. When was the last time you so desperately wanted to see and to commune with the Lord, the lover of your soul, that it caused your heart to ache because of the separation? May I say in all love, you turn your TV off for one week. And you get involved in ministry. And I mean the ministry where you mix it up in the lives of people that hate Christ. And you begin to pour out your soul in ministry to those people. And I promise you that you will long to see Jesus before the week is over. Your heart will break with the wickedness of mankind. Well, this was certainly the heart of Thomas. This was the heart of the beloved Apostle John. Remember on the Isle of Patmos, that disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember how he responded to the words of the Lord who said, Surely I am coming quickly. And John said, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Folks, may I just underscore that once again. If you ask yourself... Do I really want to go to heaven? Do I, I, I don't mean, you know, when I die, but I mean right now, wouldn't it be wonderful to be in the presence of the Lord? Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to see him face to face? If you can't really answer that in the affirmative, I promise you, you're living a shallow Christian life and you're not involved in ministry. But folks, again, you take up the sword And you go into battle, you join the fray, and you see the blood, and you feel the agony of serving Christ. 
And you will long to be in the presence of the king. Well, I must also add, and I believe that our love and our devotion to Christ is directly proportional to our perspective of our own sin. If you have a cavalier attitude towards sin, as most people do, you're going to have a cavalier attitude towards Christ. You see, most love Christ little because they love sin much. Beloved, when we fail to grasp the infinite horrors of sin and the consequences it deserves, our gratitude for the Savior's sacrifice will be abated. But again, if we could see one moment of hell, one moment of what we deserve, if we could somehow experience one moment of the agony that would be required of us to be the propitiation for our sin, we would forever be changed as we love into, as we run into the arms of a loving Savior and say, Oh God, thank you for saving me. He who loves little has no sense of being loved so greatly. An old child of God, the Redeemer's love for us begs language, but you will never grasp that until you see the depths of your depravity. And often only tragedy loosens the grip of our heart's love for this world, causing us to long to look into the face of the lover of our souls and to be grieved over this earthly separation that is ours until we see him again face to face. Folks, this was the heart of Thomas. He was devoted to Christ because he knew the wretchedness of his own heart. And therefore, he was amazed at the glory of his salvation in Jesus. And he loved him because he spent so much time with him in the midst of battle. Charles Spurgeon has said it in ways that, that have gripped my heart over the years. And one such quote I read to you now. When our thoughts of Jesus are expanded and elevated, we obtain right ideas upon other matters. In the light of his love and atoning sacrifice, we see the depth of the degradation for which such a redeemer has uplifted us. And we hate with all our hearts the sins which pierced such an altogether lovely one, and made it needful for the Lord of life to die. Forming some adequate estimate of what Jesus has done for us, our, our gratitude grows. And with our gratitude, our love, while love compels us to consecration, and consecration suggests heroic, self-denying actions. And he goes on to say, then we are bold to speak for him and ready, if needs be, to suffer for him while we feel we could give up all we have to increase his glory without so much as dreaming that we had even made a sacrifice. Let your thoughts of Christ be high and your delight in him will be high as well. Your sense of security will be strong and with the sense of security will come the sacred joy and peace which always keeps the heart which confidently reposes in the mediator's hands. Well, folks, again, Thomas loved the Lord. His devotion to him could not bear the thought of separation. And such should be the thought of every child of God who has embraced him as Savior and Lord. 
perhaps Thomas's loving devotion to Jesus combined with his pessimism fueled yet another characteristic, a final one that we look at this morning. And we find this in the final scene that we have available to us in Holy Writ with respect to Thomas, and that is in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And here we see another characteristic of Thomas. And that is that he was prone to melancholy. You remember the scene. Jesus has been taken from the disciples. He's been tortured, crucified. And by the way, remember, they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He did not come until Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was around them, but not in them. So they lacked comfort because they did not have the indwelling comforter. They lacked boldness because they did not have the source of boldness. They lacked clarity because their resident teacher was not yet in them. He was gone. They were in a state of mourning. They were grief stricken. And according to verse 19, it says that it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, folks, let me pause here. Jesus was gone. And Thomas's worst nightmare had come true. He felt alone, wouldn't you? He was abandoned. He was afraid. Undoubtedly, he was confused. And his natural proclivity to pessimism, I'm sure, convinced him that, oh, it's all downhill from here on out. Oh, what am I going to do? My life is ruined. My, my hope is gone. I'm never going to see Jesus again. How could this happen? Where is the kingdom? And so while the disciples were sequestered in this home, go back to verse 19 and notice what happens. It says that Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. But folks, guess what? According to verse 24, Thomas wasn't there. That verse says Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Well, where was he? And the scripture doesn't say. But I think it's fair to surmise. I think it's a tenable hypothesis that because of his pessimism combined with his devotion to Christ, he was probably alone somewhere. Maybe he had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he was at Golgotha. Maybe he was wandering around alone, but certainly he would have been in no mood to be around his friends given his interpersonal style of relating. He was probably one that allowed his emotions to rule his mind rather than vice versa. And instead of searching the scriptures about the truths of the resurrection and being encouraged by prophetic truth about the resurrection, he was basking in his sorrow. He could have read Isaiah 26, 19, where the prophet tells us your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Actually, God is speaking here and he's saying, awake and sing you who dwell in dust for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. He could have read that. Folks, is that what you do when you find yourself down and the world has fallen out from under you? What most people do is they get in a fetal position on a couch and symbolically they stick their thumb in their mouth and they turn on some ridiculous, inane 
television program and try to find comfort. Rather than rushing into the presence of almighty God and searching the scriptures for the comfort that is available to us through truth. You know, people that are prone to melancholy are sad people. They're moody, dejected. To use a term that we don't use very often, they are lugubrious. They're heavy hearted. They're 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 pensive, despondent, dismal. Over the years, I've dealt with these people probably on a weekly basis. Now, I wouldn't give what I'm about to say as an attribute necessarily to Thomas, even though he may have struggled with some of this. But if I can put it this way, those who severely struggle with melancholy or depression or being moody and heavy hearted and so on. There's really an etiology to their progression. There, there, there is a process here that that is rooted in an understanding of who they are. What I've seen and I could bear this out biblically, I'll not take a lot of time with it. But first of all, I see that. They have a superficial understanding of God. They serve a very small God. They have little understanding of the attributes of God. Therefore, they do not live consistently with them. And then flowing out of that comes a weak faith, a faith that is typically unexercised and like a muscle, it becomes weak and it is untested. God's resources aren't sufficient for me. And so I'll just have to suck it up and do my own thing. Woe is me. But then that weak faith also blossoms into a sullen pride, because ultimately, when you hear them talk, life is all about me. It's about my happiness and I'm not happy. I'm angry with God. I've been treated unfairly. I deserve better. Life stinks and I'm sick of it. Everybody just leave me alone. And if you stay around them long, you'll begin to see emerging out of that sullen pride and angry arrogance. Nobody's going to comfort me. Nobody's going to teach me. Nobody's going to admonish me. There's nothing you can do or say to me that will change my mind. Just leave me alone. I'm going to sulk. I'm going to whine. I'm going to pout. And if you don't like it, you can just get used to it. And don't even think about rebuking me because, frankly, I like this little world that I've created I'm not happy unless I can find something to complain about. And of course, flowing out of a superficial understanding of God, a weak faith, a sullen pride and an angry arrogance is selfish manipulation. Where the individual basically has a myriad of cues that we're all to pick up on to manipulate us to somehow feel sorry for them. I demand pity. Because I've been given a raw deal. You say, what on earth can cause a person to be this way? And you know what? I've been that way before. And you have too. some struggle with it more than others. But to answer that, you know, you could go to the Bible. You could see that Cain, due to a self-styled worship, his self-styled worship and his resentment of God's will. Remember that the Bible says that Cain was very angry and his countenance fell, led him to murder, led him to judgment. Remember Elijah? He ran under the juniper tree even after all the glorious miracles on Mount Carmel and he prayed to die. Why? Because he was afraid and God had to remind him once again of truth. David, remember, was depressed for a different reason. 
The Bible says that his pain was so great that his body was wasting away. Why? Due to sin. And he needed to confess that sin. Job was overwhelmed with melancholy and depression for yet a different reason. Overwhelmed with grief because he lost everything. And that was due to testing. The mighty hand of God was upon him and he had to learn to ask what, not why. Habakkuk, remember, was overwhelmed the same way he was burdened. He complained against God because of the manner of judgment that God had chosen to judge his covenant people. And he had to learn to trust God and to understand his goodness and his sovereignty and his ultimate justice. And then his depression lifted. Remember, even the Apostle Paul had no rest for his spirit due to great sorrows associated with ministry. He chose to focus there for a while on the temporal, not the eternal. And then he shifted his focus. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, he says, Oh, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. He had to change his perspective. Well, folks, regardless of the cause, the effect of melancholy can be devastating. Notice what happens here with Thomas in John chapter 20 and verse 25. The other disciples, therefore, saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, oh, praise God, I knew he was coming back. I knew. Where is he? I can't wait to see him. That's not what he said. He said, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Isn't it amazing when truth is unable to penetrate pessimism? When people are bent on depression, it's almost as if at times they can say, I don't even want to hear any good news. Don't even go there. I've already found a place where I can survive and it is in the safe vault of my misery. Sound familiar? Some people have nicknamed Thomas Doubting Thomas, and I think they've missed the point completely. I don't believe the issue was so much one of doubt as it was one of pessimism and melancholy combined with his overwhelming love and, 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 and his devotion to Jesus. I mean, this man was in despair. He had lost his, his Christ in his mind. But notice the love of Jesus who knew exactly the besetting sins of, the, of this servant. In verse 26, and after eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. He was there this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Now, folks, isn't this fascinating? Look what he says now. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? <laughs> Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. What a tender act of love from the Savior to once again reveal himself to this very one who needed such an account encounter. And friends, for those of you who struggle in similar ways as Thomas, 
May I just say very tenderly that he will reveal himself to you as well. Through the sound of his voice as you meditate upon his word. May I challenge you. Begin praying fervently. Jesus, shape me like you did Thomas. And like you did so many of these other men. Help me to be teachable. Help me to be humble. Help me to be committed. History well documents Thomas's ministry. In fact, not too long ago, we had a dear brother from India who reminded me of this very thing. And that is that Thomas brought the gospel of Christ to India. And our friend reported that he knew where, according to tradition, Thomas is buried on a small hill near the airport there in Chennai, at Madras, India. And it is said that Thomas did eventually die for the master. He was impaled by a spear. And as one writer put it, quote, a fitting form of martyrdom for one whose faith came of age when he saw the spear mark in his master's side and for one who longed to be reunited with his Lord. May the Spirit of God use the life of Thomas to shape our hearts into the image of the living Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us to understand the truth of who you are and the way you work in the lives of those whom you love. Lord, thank you for Thomas. What a joy it will be to see him someday. But Lord, what a joy it will be. What an inexpressible joy it will be to see you face to face. Oh God, may these eternal truths that we've immersed ourselves in this morning wash us and cleanse us that we might be vessels fit for the Master's use. And Lord, for that one that might be within the sound of my voice that is living in sin and knows it, that one whose hypocrisy might be concealed to those around, but certainly not to the penetrating eye of the one who lays all things bare. Lord, I pray that you will overwhelm any individual that is here today lost in their sins with the truth of the Savior. And Lord, may today be the day that they run to the foot of the cross and cry out, Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Lord, I pray that by your regenerating power, they will experience the miracle of the new birth even today. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray with great joy and thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.